0: Welcome to the show. We are fresh off the spring-summer
1: 2020 collections, and apparently, April, we are fashion forecasters after all.
0: I know, right? Because we recently did a fashion history mystery about the cyclical nature of fashion, and it would appear that some of our... Predictions have actually, for the future, made it to the runway.
1: (laughs) Yep. And as more than one fashion news outlet reported, Bermuda shorts are making a comeback for the spring-summer 2020 season, making appearances on numerous runways, including Givenchy, Tom Ford, and Celine. And I'm also
0: happy to report that the 70s are on live and well, thanks to Marc Jacobs, because I said that I would like to see the return of Disco. And Cass, you also said that you would like to see more fanny packs, and we saw them at Pier Moss. And your ultimate favorite, we saw the Gigo sleeves at Dries Van Nauten.
1: Oh, yeah. Gigo sleeves were all over the runway, actually. it's kind of yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, sadly, though, no Chatelaines, to my knowledge. But there's always next year. If any fashion designers are listening, get on it. <laughs> I'm very excited to hear about your favorite fashion collections, April, because we have not yet talked about it. Mm -hmm. But first, I do want to address a slight faux pas on reading an article on the Spring 2020 Trends, a fashion journalist. I will not name names, but it's a pretty um, prestigious publication. Um, But they wrote an answer to a query about why there are fashion shows. Their answer was the the fashion circuit began in the 1930s. Um, That is not correct. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, it's not. Um, But it did make me realize that while you and I have addressed the origins of Fashion Week on the show, we have not yet explored the origins of the fashion show. So I decided this was something we needed to amend immediately. And what a better excuse to do it with.
0: Yeah, so really, you have to look no further to the incredible book, basically the tour de force of research that was written by Caroline Evans. And that is the topic of her book, The Mechanical Smile, Modernism, and the First Fashion Shows in France and America, 1900 to 1929. The fashion show as a phenomenon is really a product of the 20th century, as she points out in this book. And, you know, back as early as the 1890s, French fashion houses such as Pecan were holding private fashion shows for clients and buyers.
1: Yes, but it was in America, not France, where the quote-unquote the fashion show was staged in New York's Madison Square Garden in 1903. Of course, this fashion show can be thought of more as a fashion fair. It was a two-week event that brought together makers and shakers from the uh, fashion industry. Evans compares it actually to a trade show, but one of the highlights of this fashion show or fair were, well, live fashion shows complete with a raised stage, models, music, and the latest Parisian fashion. Uh, The event apparently attracted something like 5,000 people in three days. And this sort of fashion spectacle for the masses was something distinctly American though, April, because in France, the fashion show developed in much more exclusive terms in the early 20th century.
0: Yes, and and France at this time um, might have been called the capital of fashion. We're talking about the early 20th century here, but it was actually a British fashion designer, Lady Lucille Duff Gordon, who was one of the modern fashion show's first creators or what we can kind of think almost like as a runway show, and also one of its greatest innovators. She professionally was um, simply known by her first name, Lucille And she first rose to international fame and fortune during the 19-teens, and she had branches of her business in London, Paris, um, New York City, and Chicago, all by 1915.
1: And part and parcel to her tremendous success was her genius ability to market her work to her clientele in the form of, quote-unquote, mannequin parades, as her fashion shows came to be known, mannequin, of course, being what, in at least America, we would call a model. But so Lucille's parades were... Theatrical productions, in their own right, they can complete with a cast of highly trained models, a stage, dramatic lighting, music, and even dancing and storytelling, elements that coalesce to create a spectacle of fashion that, while we might be familiar with today, was unlike anything anyone in the elite circles of fashion had ever seen at this point.
0: It was not long before other fashion designers would soon adopt Lucille's theatrical effects. And by 1910, Evans tells us that fashion shows were taking place at all of the couture houses. And these remain highly exclusive, invitation-only events, of course. So how exactly did fashion shows develop into the biannual fashion weeks that we know and love today?
1: Well, French clients only made up a small part of the couturiers' income, which we've talked about in past episodes, of course. But the industry was heavily reliant on their foreign clientele, which included manufacturers and buyers from across not just Europe, but North and South America. And these people would descend on Paris seasonally twice a year for the latest word in Paris fashion. But according to Evans... This had been happening in the 19th century, but it was only, quote, in the 20th century that fashion journalists began to refer openly to the international fashion calendar, which by the 1910s revolved around collective openings that we know and love today in February and August. Of course, we now have pre-resort, et cetera, et cetera. We have much more beyond the biannual fashion calendar, but this is kind of when it became that kind of twice a year collection showing. Mm-hmm.
0: And while these foreign buyers would return home and stage their own seasonal fashion shows to display their Parisian wares, Paris quote-unquote Fashion Week would not be rivaled until the 1940s when New York Fashion Week was established in the wake of World War II, which we've already done a fashion history mystery episode about, so you can check that out. So, Cass, you and I are now officially up to speed on all of the spring-summer 2020 collections. But unlike our predecessors, we were able to travel to these collections and view them without even leaving the comfort of our own homes. (laughs) For
1: me, I'm always looking for the art of fashion during Fashion Week. So, I'm always looking at a runway to see who is making art who is doing it in a really innovative and sustainable way, you know, handcrafted, high quality, low impact. And of course, where are all those fabulous fashion history references for you and I to discuss? So the first collection I wanna talk about is Sarah Burton at Alexander McQueen, which I found to be a particularly special collection. Not only did she upcycle fabrics and patterns from past collections that she and McQueen had worked together on, she really made this collection about the heart of her, you know, fashion community. and the art of hand and quality craftsmanship. There are two dresses in this collection that were hand embroidered by the entire McQueen staff. And I mean the entire staff from the atelier to the HR department.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs>
1: Talk about everyone pitching in. Yeah, so just a really cool um, seller singer wrote on Vogue.com just to kind of give you an idea. Sarah worked primarily with linen from Northern Ireland and linen made from flax grown at a particular female-owned farm, a farm that had until recently housed livestock. She created damasks with the sole remaining linen weaver in ireland she created lustrous light as paper linens with the sole remaining beatler in ireland and beetling is a process in which linen is covered in potato starch and then pounded on a wood machine for hours on end so you know she said that a lot of the fabric industry is endangered so it was like uh, this idea of catching things before they disappear so what a beautiful collection and testament to the art of fashion thank you sarah and the mcqueen team
0: Yeah, And and in that collection, I saw a lot of references to kind of like Western cowboy culture here and there, which was also something that we learn about a little bit about at Pure Moss because um, Kirby Jean Raymond, who's the designer for it, specifically said that cowboy culture was part of the inspiration for that collection as well, which I thought was really interesting. But the broader kind of overarching theme um, for that collection, he said, was really the way in which Black Americans should feel a pride of patriotism um, for their country and the role and the development in the country and the role that Black Americans have always played um, in in various things from rock and roll to fashion. But I thought that collection was really beautiful. And the presentation of it was simply spectacular. Oh, so cool with that choir. I mean, there's
1: 3,000 audience members, by the way, and a live 90-member choir. And I
0: had some friends that were there. I wasn't at the show, but I had some friends that were there and they were like, totally blew it out of the water. Favorite show of the entire season. So that's great. Yeah, that collection was
1: really stunning. And Kirby actually, he said that he created it um, it's part of a three-part series. It was created to address the negation of the African-American voice in popular culture. And it was, this particular fashion show was entitled Sister in honor of Sister Rosetta Thorpe, the badass electric guitarist, singer, and godmother of rock and roll, who yeah. is awesome. And yeah, he he writes that she toured the world and had a successful career, but we wrote her out of the history books and made it a patriarchal thing, a white thing, as opposed to really honor the woman who birthed rock and roll, which later... Birthed hip hop and all those different things. So, um, you know, he kind of talks about how uh, of that lineage we have Little Kim, Cardi B, Anita Baker, Patti LaBelle. Um, so, what an incredible, powerful collection, but also so beautiful and electric all those colors and patterns coming together. And there's keyboard fanny packs. <laughs> <laughs> you and your fanny packs. <laughs> <gasps> mm-hmm. They're a saver people and they're quite fashionable now. So Yeah.
0: Well, one of my favorite shows was the Mary Katranzu show. Did oh yeah, they're so on the same page this season. Yeah. Um, she, uh, Mary Katronzu, um is, is a Greek designer. Um, she was born in Greece. And um, this the, was the entire inspiration for this really spectacular collection. It was essentially like her love letter to the way in which Greek culture has helped to shape Western society throughout like millennia. And so we see like little bits and pieces like referencing philosophy, theology, um, astronomy, even math and trigonometry that were all these gifts given to Western society by by Greek culture and they are referenced in the clothes specifically which, which is really brilliant and it has kind of like a, a feeling of like mysticism to that particular collection you know we see references to you know that Uh, ubiquitous symbol of the snakes intertwined. That's for medicine casts. Um, We see some um, beading and embroidery of that. We also see some references to infinity loops related to the mathematical concept of pi. I I just loved this collection. And, And one of the first things that I also thought is I wondered when I saw it, if perhaps she has seen the Hilda off Clint show that was recently up at the Guggenheim um, because I kind of, I kind of got some little vibes of that as well. Oh yeah,
1: it's such a beautiful collection. Definitely check it out. I immediately thought of kind of like sea urchin creatures because there's these crazy shapes and silhouettes that are kind of molding and forming and coming off of the body. And it starts off in kind of this gray and black color palette. And then it's this rainbow of colors and shapes. It's such a beautiful collection. If I'm not mistaken, she did it for a fun, as a fundraiser as well um, for a charity that supports children with cancer. So just a stunningly beautiful beautiful uh, collection. And this leads me to my absolute favorite collection which was a surprise collaboration between Dries Van Noten and Christian Lacroix. I mean, that was talk about a riot of color. It was so incredibly beautiful and luxurious, just dripping in in excess. And um, I think Sarah Mooraveau called it maximalist, eccentric, escapism, meeting pragmatic, purist, minimalism.
0: <laughs> well, I thought what was really funny is they kept this collaboration that they were doing under, like, top secret lock and key like nobody knew that they were doing this until like the very last minute and i totally agree with you about this like being like uh, so vibrant and and just like full of joy and full of life and again and again we see this like collision of Animal prints and these crazy bright florals. And, and the whole collection has like lots of silk and lots of taffeta and lots of volume, which is, of course, like very LaCroix. <laughs> yeah. And just the mixing
1: of these like crazy animal and floral prints that nobody else could get away with, I feel like it's done in such a wonderful way. Yeah. And it's really funny because Dries, um, he did an interview, I think, with Vogue, they both did. And he said, When I was thinking about this collection, I was thinking the world is so strange at the moment with Trump, with Johnson, with Brazil burning. I could go one of two ways, very gray and grim or the opposite, using fashion not as a dream, but maybe a cure. So I was looking to the 80s and 90s couture and Lacroix and what he stood for,
0: beauty, excess, freedom. And then I thought, why not email him? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's how these things happen. Sometimes you just email someone. That's how we find guests for our show sometimes. We just send them an email. Like, hey, you want to hang out? You want to do something? Yeah, so they met
1: together a total of seven times and really collaborated. Christian, it should be said, didn't hasn't actually worked in the fashion industry for many years. Although I do think he came and did like a special edition of Scaparelli at some point. But um, he actually lost the rights to his name when he sold the house to LVMH in '87, and he left it and the fashion industry in 2009. So this was a rare reappearance. And I actually actually he said that this experience was wonderful, but that this is his last day in fashion. <laughs>
0: He's like, I'm over it. But what a way to go out. Yeah, it's a celebration of fashion for sure. And I think that does it for our fashion history mystery mini-sode this week, friends. Reminder, we do still have space for our newly added week of our June 2020 trip to Paris. If you'd like more information, you can head over to likemindstravel.com. And we have lots of fun things in store for our listeners who join us. So check it out. If you'd like to submit a question for a future episode, you can DM us at dressed underscore
1: podcast or email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia who makes this show possible each and every week. Please tune in Tuesday for our full-length episode, and we will catch you then.
0: Have a good one. The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.